Are polls misrepresenting Americans? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Polling is ubiquitous, helping us predict elections and understand American public opinion. But declining response rates mean we're reliant on the shrinking minority of Americans that are interviewed to represent the broader public. If they're unrepresentative, we may be getting a misleading picture. New evidence suggests that because not all Americans are equally willing to participate, the polls may get elections wrong and make the country look more polarized than it is. Today, I talk with Josh Clinton of Vanderbilt University about his new public opinion quarterly article with John Lipinski and Mark Tressler, Reluctant Republicans, Eager Democrats. They find that in 2020, Democrats were more likely to agree to be interviewed than Republicans, and especially independents. Common corrections were not able to compensate as the partisans that do respond aren't representative of those who don't. He says that contributed to the big 2020 polling miss. I also talked to Amnon Kabari of Reichman University about his American Political Science Review article with Guy Friedman, Survey Non-Response and Mass Polarization. They find that response rates have gone way down over time. Not because we can't reach people, but because they refuse to participate. Those who are interviewed are more educated and interested in politics. On several issues, this means our measures of polarization overestimate our differences. They both say we can no longer assume that those who do respond are representative of those who don't. Clinton began with explaining the 2020 polling miss. The big findings was that, you know, as many people have known, that, you know, pre-election polls in 2020 had a large amount of polling error in 30 years, all right? And at the same time, there's been more polling being done now than ever before, and so one difficulty is like, what's the source of that error? Like what actually happened? And a big difficulty is that we often try to look at polling and try to diagnose polling errors by looking at who responds, but that's really hard to do without some information about who doesn't respond. And so most of the time, like all we know is who's responding and though trying to figure out the counterfactual about like, well, who's not talking to pollsters is really, really hard. And so what we were able to do is we were able to use uh, voter registration data that was being used to conduct polling to actually directly compare the characteristics of people who are responding to polls to those who are not. And so we can only use demographic information and kind of information collected in voter files. But in so doing, we show that there's a pretty large difference in terms of the people who were cooperating with human interviewers versus those that were not. In particular, among the 10 states that we looked at, you know, Democrats or people who are identified as Democrats by the voter file were three percentage points more likely than Republicans to cooperate with pollsters and six percentage points more likely to cooperate than independents. Now, whether that's because Democrats were overeager or Republicans were especially reluctant, that's hard for us and impossible for us to determine because all we can really figure out is what the difference is. But even so, that suggests that there's something going on there. And we show that when you correct that by making by making the assumption that if Democrats, Republicans, and independents all cooperate equally, then in a lot of states, we're able to kind of reduce the amount of polling error by about an average of four points. So that's computed by looking at the difference between what the poll said between Bush, but between Biden and Trump rather, and what the certified vote was. And so that margin shrinks by four percentage points. But importantly, right, it doesn't shrink everywhere. And in particular, in critical swing states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, there was still a substantial amount of polling error even after we equalize cooperation, which suggests that there's something else going on there or we're lacking good enough data about the partisanship of voters to kind of correct that imbalance. 
Kavari finds that who responds to polls is increasing polarization in some issue areas. Uh, so the main finding is an association between the decline of response rate in phone-based probability samples and conventional measures of polarization. Uh, mainly as response rates decline, reaching today about 6 to 8% response in non-academic polling, probability samples increasingly overrepresent people who are more engaged in politics. We further suggest that the select group of engaged people who respond to surveys do not accurately represent the political divide among Americans. Mainly, we show that engagement bias elevates measures of polarization on some topics, economy, energy, immigration, downplays them on other issues, mainly foreign affairs, and has no effect on party-owned issues such as civil rights and social welfare. The main takeaway is about polarization of mass Americans what we argue to be one of the most heated topics in political science today, especially in American politics. We show that by relying on probability surveys, the primary tool of assessing polarization, we are mismeasuring polarization. While we agree that the United States has become more polarized in the last few decades, we suggest that we may be failing to assess correctly the scale and scope of mass polarization. In a way, this may be fueling the growing divide we currently find in American politics. Those who are more engaged in politics voice an opinion that is strongly aligned with their party affiliation and therefore generate a perceived polarization of Americans. This perceived polarization pushes and justifies the elite, we the elite divide we find in our representative institutions. This is further, of course, strengthened by the electoral process in the United States through partial turnout in general and primary elections which gives more weight to the more engaged, active, and participatory Americans. Again, those are the ones who are more polarized. Kavari says it illustrates a broader problem with modern surveys. So a second takeaway is about survey data more generally. Though we do not cross out the use of survey data, a tool we use often in our own research, we suggest that scholars should exercise great caution in using survey data and generalizing from them. Social scientists should ask themselves, if there is an association between possible biases in survey data and their measured outcome. This is especially true when probability samples end up with extremely low participation rates. The evidence here is really clear. About one in 15 Americans respond to commercial surveys today. It is not clear that we can confidently generalize from that person to the other 14 because we cannot confidently state that those who respond are not systematically different than those who do not respond. On some measures, we may be able to rely on such data, but on others, we may not. The onus is on the researcher to justify any generalization they make from such data. And this is a steep hill to climb because one of our main problem, problems in assessing the effect of non-response is the, the fact that we lack information about those who do not respond. We simply do not know what their political attitudes are. Clinton agrees it might be the tip of the iceberg for problems in survey research. So much of what we know about politics and political science is nowadays based on polling, right? But like if the underlying data that we're analyzing to do that analysis, it were missing key parts of the population, right? Then that's really troubling, right? As political scientists, as policymakers, as in people are interested in kind of the ability to use polls to make statements about accountability and representation, Right? That's a kind of a meta problem that's really, really concerning. And so like we've got great statistical analysis, like we can do whiz bang things with machine learning and all this other crazy stuff. But at the end of the day, like if our data that we're trying to analyze is somehow systematically different, 
right? And the, the people who are talking to us and taking political surveys or, or surveys about politics are different than those who are not. Right? Then the whole edifice of what we're doing, what we're able to learn is, is somewhat compromised. They both looked at survey cooperation. Cooperation, right, is a kind of a technical term that basically means that if we actually know that a poll, that a human interviewer is talking to an actual person, right, not a dial tone, not a business, but you're talking to an actual human being, what percentage of people who cooperate, which is that agree to take the survey versus those who hang up the phone? So what that means is that, you know, among the people who are actually human beings that are being talked to, right, Democrats were three percentage points more likely that the Republicans to kind of continue to actually take the survey rather than just hang up and six percentage points more likely than independents to take, actually take the survey. Now, overall, right, the ability to get people on the phone in general is just an unmitigated disaster, right? I mean, that's a technical term. I think right now response rates for polling is about low sing single digits, like five to six percentage points, if you're lucky, which means out of every 100 human beings you're trying to contact, five of them are willing to talk to you, right? Which is like, right off the bat, kind of shows the difficulties involved with polling and kind of the wondering like, well, who are these five people? Are they really normal? Like, right, by definition, they're not, right? Because only five of out of 100 are talking to you. But that is the kind of challenge that, that polling shows. And so what we're showing is that even among this already low response rate, so there's the difference between Democrats and Republicans and independents you know, based on their political persuasions, or at least correlate with their political persuasions, about who's willing to kind of conduct that interview in, t in the 2020 uh, presidential uh, election surveys that were done. Today, people are automatically called, um, and they can decide to pick up the phone or not, right? So if they pick up the phone, that's one stage. But if they do not pick up the phone, we fail to contact them. We don't know a lot about them. And likely it is because of different mechanisms that are not connected sufficiently with anything that we can explain. For example, it could be because of caller ID features, uh, screening abilities that some put in place and some do not. So we don't know exactly why they contact, they are not, they fail to, 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 to come up in our, in our samples. Cooperation rates is something different. In cooperation rates, what we have, those who are already contacted, we they actually picked up the phone, they're ready to talk to us. And then we ask them questions about politics. And they say, no, we do not want to answer your, your survey. Those people are people that I can actually start talking about them. So those are people that I can actually say, they purposefully made a decision not to talk to me about politics, which I can assume that it is connected to personal preferences, knowledge, and interest in politics, which we examine as well in the article. As such, we can expect that if the decline response rate is attributed more to the cooperation rates rather than the contact rates, it could be that it is associated with measured attitudes. And that's exactly what drove us to examine in, that, in this paper. In this paper, what we are trying to see, to what extent is the decline response rate attributed to contact versus cooperation, that's one thing, and then whether each one of them explains the change in polarization. Clinton's analysis began from working on errors in the 2016 and 2020 elections. 
So, I mean, I've been doing uh, election work at NBC News uh, since 2010. And so I've been, I'm a senior election analyst there now. And so I remember uh, sitting through the 2020 election, watching the results coming in and like, just like saying, what in the world's going on? Like, am I having a flashback to 2016? Because, you know, the polls were telling a very different story than what the actual votes were, you know, slow as they were to be counted because of the pandemic, like that were actually telling. And so, you know, this um, uncertainty about what we can learn from pre-election polls because they seem to be off uh, was kind of a, an issue that was, was kind of digging away at me. And I was, I was a member of the 2016 task force by the American Association of Public Opinion Research that kind of looked into the polling of 2016 and, and kind of said, well, there's also an error there. And so there were some claims that maybe if we wait by education, the difference between education levels, that would fix things. But quite clear, that was not the case. And so um, for better or for worse, um, I agreed to be the chair of the 2020 task force. And so that made election night particularly perplexing because I realized that now I just took on a huge burden that I had to kind of come up with some kind of fix for or try to diagnose what happened. And so this is uh, this paper is an offshoot of some of the work that we did there. They got information comparing who agreed to participate from the voter file. And so what we did is we used the voter file. But as you know, right, that's a bit of a, a danger zone, right? Because like the amount of information, the quality of that information varies tremendously across different states. And so, you know, there's all these commercial voter files like Target Smart, the one we use, or L2 or Catalyst. And what they all have their special algorithms right, to try to figure out what the partisanship of voters are. And so in some places, right, when there's, you know, you record that when you register to vote, right? So they're state source primary. So you sell, you self-report your, your, what your party is. But even then that can be goofball, right? Because like in a state like Tennessee, where there's only one game in town, maybe you have some Democrats who register as Republicans because like the most interesting races are on the Republican side, not the Democratic side. So even then, that's a kind of a, a kind of a, a measure that's with error. And so then the question is like, well, how do you figure out what someone's partisanship is? Right. And, and that becomes difficult. And so you can see basically what primary elections they voted like in the past, what their stated, what the party registration was, or kind of even what a lot of people also do is kind of look at what the precinct level voting behavior was. And so, you know, I'm going to assume that you're the same partisanship as everyone as kind of whatever the modal vote is in your in your particular geographic location. But of course, that's like an ecological inference, right, that has tremendous a lot of amount of error. And so like this is one of those measures that I think is like not great, but except for all the alternatives. Right. And so like, you know, so I think there's huge caveats to that. And I think you see the impact of that. Like when we did the adjustment for states on like you know, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, it didn't make a big difference. And why? Because the ability to kind of identify the partisanship of respondents and non-respondents in those states using the available demographic information, the available voting information is really, really limited. And so like, if I'm trying to make an adjustment based on bad data, like newsflash, it's not going to work too well. And that's exactly kind of what happened. And so I think this is a real limitation that we don't know precisely who's responding and who's not responding, and that and that makes things makes things complicated. The exit poll they looked at was just a pre-election survey. So when I say exit poll, like it was called the exit poll, but it was like traditionally a, a just, it was like a normal pre-election poll. Like these are polls that are being done because of the pandemic, right? Which kind of changed everything. Which again, maybe this was also partially responsible for the polling error. Like we can't know how it generalizes. Like a lot of the, the national election poll was doing, in addition to the in-person exit polling on election day, they are also doing regular human interviewer and polls, just like any other pre-election polling, 
calling off registered voter lists. And so in that sense, it closely resembled a lot of the kind of high quality pre-election polling that was being done. They also confirmed well-known biases in response beyond partisanship, but some are easier to correct than others. At the end of the day, like all we were trying to figure out, like if you talk to a human being, what fraction of those are willing to kind of complete your survey? And as you know, like, you know, that we found partisan differences, but there's also differences by race, gender, and age, right? In particular, you know, non-white respondents were less likely to, to kind of take a survey. Females were slightly more likely to co- cooperate with a human interviewer and older people are more likely to kind of cooperate with the survey. And so these kind of highlight the, the general problem of polling, which is that the people you talk to and the people who are willing to talk to you more particular are not necessarily a random sample of the electorate or the population. In particular, there's well-known biases according to race, gender, age, and you know what we're kind of saying, maybe even partisanship, that affect who responds. And so this is why one of the critical tasks of pollsters is to try to figure out how do I adjust the people, how do I weight the data to make it sure that the data that I'm analyzing is reflective of the population that I care about. And so um, in terms of race, gender, and age, like as you know, these are kind of well-known differences in terms of the participation of, of people in terms of taking surveys. And so this is why pollsters wait. And they traditionally wait on race, gender, age, and increasingly now education after 2016, because we know just is that there's difference in the the likelihood that people respond. And so what we show is that in addition to that, like even if you control for those differences, there seems to be an additional difference in terms of the cooperation willingness between Democrats, Republicans, and kind of independents that also seem to be potentially right relevant uh, for for diagnosing survey responses, but then how do we account for that is, is a little bit more complicated than, than the straightforward gen, uh, demographic information. Election polling misses are one thing, but are we getting a broader misperception? Kavari is connecting two broad trends. We know that polarization is increasing at the same time as survey response declines. So looking at data over time in both ANES data and Pew data that we examined, we see two very clear trends that over time, we see an increasing divide between the parties. We call that polarization, Democrats versus Republicans. We see that very clearly over time. We talked about it in, in a lot of different, we, we see a lot of uh, work on that in political science. So that's one thing. At the same time, we also see a decline in response rates. Fewer people, fewer Americans are willing to respond to surveys. So the question is, when we see, when we talk about an increasing polarization, could it be that the reason for that increasing polarization is because the people we measured 20 years ago are not the same people we are measuring today? Maybe we are not comparing apples to apples. And 20 years ago, there was a certain amount of people who are answering the surveys. Today, fewer people are answering the surveys. And those people are systematically different. In what way? They're more engaged. They're more educated. They are more involved in politics. They're more interested in politics, which means that they may, have, they, are, they may be more opinionated. As more opinionated, it could be that they are actually more divided over policy. And therefore, our measure of polarization actually goes up. They try to distinguish the effect of cooperation from a simple time trend. The concern was, okay, so we have a decline in response rate. So in the past, it was high. It was above. It was in the 1990s. We're talking about near 50%. So this was 
high in the past, but since early 2000s, we see a, a rapid decline from about 30% to about less than 10%. So the question is, what is actually driving our, uh, first of all, what is driving the decline? That's one thing, but also what is driving the effect on polarization? So we know that at the same time, we see an increasing polarization of Americans. But to what extent is this actually correlated? We find very strong negative correlation. So as server response declines, measures of, polarizations, of polarization increase. We had to entangle that both in terms of kind of response, but also to include any indicator of time, which we did in this article, and we show that having controlling for time change, we still see that decline uh, unit response, decline response rate, especially cooperation, leads to uh, increasing measures of polarization. They find differences across issues based on whether the more informed are more or less polarized than the less informed. So we divide it into three kinds of issues. Um, first is the idea of uh, um, issue uh, or party-owned issues. Those are issues that we should expect strong division between the parties. For example, abortion um, or other human rights issues or uh, social welfare. We know that Democrats and Republicans are taking very different views on that. So that's one kind of issues. But there are other issues such as um, uh, performance, domestic issues, economy, immigration, energy. On those issues, we should not expect as strong as a divide. So the argument is we see an increasing divide, but maybe that is explained to some extent by the declining uh, unit response rate. And the last one is foreign policy. And foreign policy, again, it is a performance issue. And on that issue, but we have a different kind of thinking about that issue. On, on, uh, on foreign policy, most Americans are little informed about foreign policy. And because they're little informed about foreign policy, they're more likely to follow elite cues. And if elite cues are more divided, then they're more likely to be polarized. But those who are more engaged, more involved, more knowledgeable about politics, we know that they are actually listening to other kinds of cues. Mainly, they're looking at nonpartisan -prof non professional cues and do they not? They are actually not likely to revert to uh, to the partisan cues, and are more likely to listen to structure, purposeful attitudes that give them more information. They are actually able to shy away from the political divisions. So this is kind of those are the three kinds of topics that we're looking at. We break the data into those three uh, types of uh, of um, of, uh, of issues, and we find that on. Um, Party-owned issues, unit response, decline unit response that ha has no effect whatsoever on polarization. That is that is uh, not working there. But on domestic issues, on domestic performance issues, we see that the declining unit response increases polarization. And on foreign policy, exactly in reverse. Declining unit response decreases polarization. What happens that on foreign policy, we have the more educated, more knowledgeable who are less polarized on foreign policy. Kavari says that pre-election polling could be better than issue polling, but only if we can adjust.
Our argument in, the, in our article is that survey data with low response rate can be representative as long as the sample bias is not correlated with the measure of interest. We argue that a correlation exists for measure of polarization. Mainly, people who are answering surveys are more engaged, opinionated, and therefore more polarized than those who are not responding. But for pre-election polling, this is not necessarily the case, or at least was not viewed as necessarily the case. A thorough study by Jennings and Velazian in, from Nature in 2018 shows that while response rates are declining in most countries, uh, they examine about 45 countries, the frequency of pre-election surveys and weighting abilities allow us to rely on pre-election polling to predict accurately election outcomes. They show that the bias in survey is not correlated with the measure outcome, which is vote choice. It is also useful that in elections, we are interested in those who are more likely to vote. Indeed, not 7% of the population turn out to vote, but this small category of people may be more representative of the actual voters. So that is uh, what we had in the background when we wrote the 2018 uh, piece. The Clinton paper, uh, the Clinton et al. paper, shows that unit response in the 2020 election was correlated with partisan response. People who are answering the surveys are more enthusiastically Democrats. Their finding concurs actually with our main takeaway. Survey samples may provide an accurate representation of the population as long as the outcome variable is not correlated with any bias in the sample. If response rates are correlated with the vote choice, then any generalization, generalization would be biased. And because we do not have sufficient information about those who do not respond, any post-survey adjustments may not correct for that bias. And it actually can increase that bias. The Clinton et al. paper actually shows that when they apply weights, they get rid of some of the bias, but they are not able to solve the rest of the bias. Clinton says pre-election polling still has uses despite the difficulties. I think there is a role for pre-election polling, right? And I think the role for pre-election polling is, first of all, it does give us some sense about what races are close or not, right? It gives some notion about what the electorate's going to look like. And I think that's important, right? I think in a democracy, having some expectations about what an election could look like are really important for kind of the, the peaceful transfer of power, right? You don't want election results to come out of nowhere, right? And for there's kind of be partisan meandering. And increasingly we're seeing nowadays about like, you know, the election, like this is completely on, you know, no one expected this outcome, right? And so I think pre-election polling helps make, give the populace an idea of what's likely to happen to help, help situate themselves and provide some context for if the change is going to occur, what that, whether that's likely or not. Right. So I think it, it's useful for helping tell the story about how the country is going to trans, you know, transfer from one party to another party or keep the same party. It gives it gets people in the right mind space for interpreting one election uh, with the outcome of the election. But then also, I think like, you know, I know like everyone focuses on the, the, the horse race. and I think that's not necessarily healthy. But the, the part of the pre-election polling that I think is healthy is, again, the ideas about what voters are talking about, what they care about. Like, what do they think about the particular policies? Why are they casting their ballots? I know there's not, you know, that's not as, you know, attractive to talk about as who's up and who's down because it's a more nuanced story. But I think it's a more foundational story and it kind of goes more to the heart of what democracy is, right? An election just says who wins, who loses, right? But you think about like, you know, one story, what's going on in 2020 is like, well, did the Democrats overreach? Did they overinterpret what the voters wanted? Well, how would you know? 
The only way you would ever know is not by looking at election returns, because that's just binary. Right? You said Biden versus Trump. I mean, the only way you would ever know about what the voters want, expect, and kind of are thinking about in terms of what their concerns are is by looking at what they actually tell you. He says there are differences between election and issue polling, though both may be off. So on the one hand, one thing that distinguishes pre-election polling from other polling, which makes it harder, is that pre-election polling has this added degree of difficulty where, like in a normal election poll, like so, you know, we do some polling here in Vanderbilt for, for the state of Tennessee. And so what benefits us is that we know what the population of registered voters in the state look like, right? We know the partisanship, we know the, gen, the, de, the dem, demographics. And so we can actually make sure that our polls, as best we can, right, assuming there's not this within party variation, which there very well could be, right? But it kind of closely re resembles what the state looks like. But in a pre-election polling, right, you don't have that, right? Because like it depends upon like who's going to vote in 2020, right? So think about the lead up in 2020. Like was how, what was the expectation about how much support President Trump was actually going to turn out, right? Given his historically low approval numbers, did people think there was going to be a record turnout on the Republican side, right? Did everything that they, given that he was at historical levels of kind of low approval, we'd never seen that before in contemporary history, right? Was there an expectation that turnout would be so much higher in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, right? In terms of who was going to vote, like, I'd say no. I'd say I don't think people are kind of, you know, some maybe made, but in general, like I don't think, you know, we had a great sense of what was going to happen. And that's the problem with pre-election polling is that it requires you to have an assessment of who's actually going to vote. And that's something that's unknown, right? And that differentiates itself from normal polling. And so that's an added level of kind of difficulty that's there. The second thing is I think that we expect different things from the different types of polls that also increase the level of difficulty. For a pre-election, for a pre-election polling, like you're trying to nail a horse race poll, where being off by one or two or three percentage points means the world of difference, right? But for issue polling, right, well, you know, we're off by three or four points, right? The, the level of precision that you expect from an issue poll is much more coarser, right? You just want to know, does a majority support this policy or not, right? And so even the way we think about polling in terms of what we're trying to learn, I think is, is qualitatively different in ways that affect the, the accuracy and kind of the usefulness of that particular polling. And so not only is it harder to do pre-election polling because you want to try to figure out, you need to know what the electorate's going to look like, but also the expectations about how precise you have to be are also harder and higher because now you're trying to analyze a two or three percentage point difference, which could matter a great deal for an election and that's highly polarized, whereas issue polling, Generally, people are just saying, well, how much support is there? Is there a lot or there a little, right? There's that, that quantification is kind of much, much lower, lower demands. And so I think some of the issues that we identify in pre-election polling almost assuredly affect issue polling, right, to be clear. But I think the magnitude of those issues is probably less because, A, we know what the population is in a state. And then and secondly, that we don't have the same level of expectation about the quantification. Like we don't really care if support for a particular policy is 67% or 63%, right? Kabari argues that issue polling can be good at illustrating the level of support, but maybe not for the gap between partisans. Issue polling is not necessarily biased. Um, in issue polling, we usually want to assess overall support for a policy. It may be sufficient to rely on the extremes, assuming that those who do not respond are somewhere in the middle, but with some directional preferences. I don't need all to respond. I just need sufficient and representative representation of the two or more sides. Our concern is when we try to measure the extent of the divide, taking the two extreme groups and saying that they represent the divide of all Americans. 
The focus here is on the delta, but our sample incorrectly measures the delta. So I don't think that we should cross away the whole idea of, uh, of, of survey, especially for issue polling. But there are things that we just can't measure. Divide is one of them. Clinton et al. shows that it may not be accurate to use uh, pre-polling surveys for uh, voting um, preferences. But that does not necessarily mean that everything in polling is broken. Unfortunately, most media polls are even more unrepresentative. The lower the response rate, the, the, the higher the bias we can find. Um, so, um, and, and we show our results are consistent both in Pew surveys in which we show the decline from 25% to 6%. We show that with ANES data, the decline from um, highs of 70% to, uh, to 30 to, to uh, 30s and then going up to about uh, 40 to 50%, we show actually those, those changes. So we see that in different levels of response rate. We actually argue, and we show that through education, that once you get to the around 5% um, uh, response rate, you are starting to not be able to, um, uh, to, to say that this is a representative sample of the population. It may be representative on gender, maybe it is representative on, uh, on race, on maybe on party, on other measures, but education shows that it actually does not. And beyond education, we need to question, and media has to account for that. When they are um, um, reporting a survey in which we have one in 20, one in 30 responding to a survey and willing to pick up the phone and answer it to a survey, then it is they, they need to do a lot you know, to persuade us that this can be generalized to the entire population. Polarization is real, but it is exaggerated in some areas. The evidence that we have of uh, polarization is real. Um, our argument is not that polarization does not exist, but only that it is somewhat exaggerated. We actually find that response rates are not associated with polarization on party-owned issues. Uh, we also show that elite polarization measure, measured using congressional actions is positively correlated with mass polarization on some issues. Polarization is a feature of U.S. politics today at the elite and mass level. We only argue that our measure of mass polarization may be exaggerated, or at least on some topics. Um, and we see that strongly on immigration. Perhaps the strongest evidence is on immigration, but also on economy and on, uh, and on, um, on energy. For such an important feature of American politics, um, polarization, uh, I think that we need to, uh, to, to get it right, to try to find a way to measure it correctly rather than assume that our measures are giving us the proper or the accurate uh, scale and scope of the, of the, um, of, of, of the phenomena. But survey response bias may inflate our estimates of affective polarization as well. But focusing specifically on affective polarization, I think there is a strong indicator, a strong uh, reason to believe that it should have an effect. Conventional measures of affective polarization are based on survey data, how one sees members from the other political group and their own political group. We should expect that those most engaged and opinionated will be also more 
opinionated about members of the out group, or at least in relation to their to themselves. In a different study, in a different political setting, of course, I find that people who identify as moderates and center parties show weaker effective polarization. So I assume that by sampling strong partisan, we may be exaggerating the strength of effective polarization in the United States. We are not considering the moderates because we are losing them, but even more problematic, we are not considering the moderate partisans, which are, I think are even more important to me. Those are not people who are saying we are in the middle, those who are saying that, yeah, I am a Democrat or I'm a Republican or I'm a liberal or I'm conservative, but my views are not as extreme. We are losing them. Those are important people in when we try to assess effective polarization. And change our views of each political party. So if we're taking surveys of Democrats or of Republicans, we are looking at those who are um, uh, f- see themselves as strong Democrats or strong strong partisans, um, and we will find we uh, assumingly the results will will demonstrate those who are taking the harsher, the stronger views, but we won't see the spectrum of views of each party. And this is something that will lead us to first of all believe that the party is more homogeneous. Well, it is not as homogeneous as uh, it may be. We don't know, right? So that's that's kind of the problem that we have. We don't necessarily know. Currently, we assume that they are more homogeneous. That's the way we treat that in the media, in our research. They may not be. Regular or ordinary Democrats, ordinary Republicans, some of them are very taking very strong views on issues, but some of them are not. And that is true for both opinions or policy preferences, evaluation of candidates, and also voting. As long as we don't have information about those relatively moderates, uh, we are losing information about them. Um, and that is, we are losing information, not only losing information about them, we are losing our ability to assess what those parties are, what do they stand for, um, how do they, what is the mix of views that we have in those, in those parties. Waiting may not help, but transparency and increasing response rates could. We simply do not know the views of people who do not respond. Any post weights assume something which we just don't know. Whereas in pre-election polling, which is a problem, and Clinton et al. Um, uh, assessed that, in pre-election polling, we can use some measures of previous um, uh, voting with um, voting in, uh, in, in the districts or other, other things that they, we can use with attitudes we simply do not know. We have no source of information about their opinion. So all of those solutions of uh, post-survey weights may drive us to even uh, stronger biases or more more problems. And this is something that we should be very wary of doing. Having said that, I am still convinced that this is the best way to measure public opinion. And we want to measure public opinion as people interested in politics and people interested in studying politics. We need to know what people want, think, and do politically. So we need to find a way to do that. I am not suggesting that we uh, avoid po- polling. We should embrace polling and find ways to uh, make them better. 
So some of that is will be to either, first of all, to be as transparent as we can. And by the way, I should note that Pew Data, uh, the reason that we use Pew Data, because they were they are as transparent, professionally transparent as they are. They actually provide all the information that I needed for the paper. Everything from response rates, cooperation rates, contact rates, everything is available there, which is remarkable. That's why we're able to use that uh, data. I expect all of other pollsters to present that data. So we'll be able to evaluate uh, the maybe the, the size of the error term that is possible there. So that's one thing. But other things, pollsters should make strong attempts to increase response rates. And they have ways to do that. It may be more expensive. It may be more um, troublesome. It may be uh, slower. They won't be able to do a survey and give us a result immediately the day after what attitudes of Americans about a speech that the president made a, a day, um, um, one day ago. It will, t it will be slower, it will be more expensive, but it will probably be more accurate. We can rely on that. Clinton is now looking at a day-to-day -day variation in responses and change over time in responsiveness in panels. So one thing that we've done, for example, is we've gotten some survey data that's pretty high frequency, you know, so, you know, thousands of interviews, you know, in every single month, like even, you know, thousands of interview a day. And so it's interesting that if you just take this kind of mass of people who are taking these surveys, because like nowadays there's so many survey companies like, and more people are being surveyed, like it's actually insane, the level of kind of public opinion research that's being done. But it's kind of interesting that if you just like look at who's responding a, any given day, and if you weight those respondents to be nationally representative, right? So you hold fixer demographics, you get tremendous amount of partisan variation nonetheless, day to day. That's not being driven by demographics. And so one thing is trying to figure out, you know, does the fluctuations that we see in partisanship in terms of who's responding, how does that correspond to the political environment, right? So do we different see that there's this enthusiasm gap? So like when your team is winning, you're more likely to tell a pollster about that versus vice versa. Right. Which is a different story than just saying that Democrats are more eager and Republicans are less eager. Right. It, it may be a more nuanced story about it depends upon you know, the, the, the political um, per, you know, travails of your, your particular uh, party that you're associated with. The other thing I've been looking at is, you know, a difficulty that we have in kind of non-response is that we don't know who the non-responders are. Right. And so it, therefore you can't really compare. And so we were also limiting what we could do because like we had partisanship. But as we talked about, that measure is really, really crude. Right, particularly in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, but there's other ways to kind of think about who's responding, who's not responding. That may give us a little bit of a, a of a handle on this. And so there's like you know there's a there's other ways of doing surveys instead of just kind of ran, inter, in, randomly interviewing a bunch of different people at different times. We can also like look at panels. And so there's a couple of kind of panels that exist where we recruit people at the beginning, and then we ask them to take surveys over time. And so. You, that has the benefit of like conditional on responding, which is important, right? Conditional on agreeing to, to join the panel, which isn't everybody. And some of the biases that we talked about may affect that. But once they join the panel, we often ask them a whole bunch of questions about trust, about, you know, their partisanship, whether they, you know, and all these different aspects. And what we've been looking at is kind of looking to see, can we look at some of these long running panels by, by Pew or by the voter study group, right? To kind of figure out, is there a different, you know, the, when do people stop taking the survey and who, would, you know, basically who trites, who would, who stops participating and kind of what's that, what kind of opinions are kind of predicted by that? So are the high interested people more likely to continue participating? Are people voted for Trump in 2016 more likely to kind of drop off? 
are people who are you know more trusting of institutions more likely to continue taking it so that gives us more flexibility because the counterfactual there is kind of people who stopped taking rel relative but we know what their information is when they first recruited in 2016. Kavari agrees that online panels could help us investigate but they won't solve the problem. We need to understand how those panels were created what attempts were made to get people into those samples and there are uh, companies today that are trying to create a more uh, representative, a more uh, random selected um, uh, samples into their uh, into their um, online panels. So in a way, comparing that all the time to a gold standard, I think is problematic in of itself is uh, is a problem. We do have, um, I'm not sure we solve the problems with online samples. Um, we actually maybe uh, even, uh, they're even strengthened, but at least we are aware of those problems. And I think that is an important feature of, um, of any uh, research that we do, especially on survey data. We know what the source of the error is. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, you should check out our previous related episodes. I think you'll like interpreting the early results of the 2020 election, the hyper-involved versus the disengaged, how political values and social influence drive polarization, is demographic and geographic polarization overstated, and the role of political science in American life. Thanks to Josh Clinton and Amnon Kavari for joining me. Please check out Reluctant Republicans, Eager Democrats, and Survey Non-Response and Mass Polarization, and then listen in next time. Mm -hmm.